Hey, Guru Nation, thank you so much for watching. Make sure you like, subscribe, comment, share. Today we got a really special episode for you. We have a person who is an industry veteran who started a CRO. And it's it's something that a lot of people uh, want to aspire towards. Um, I'm noticing that a lot, that people who have worked in the space for any given period of time, like there's the subsection of people, and I want to get that. I want to get into that with you, Donna. Um, what made you want to do that? Like, uh, there we could unpack a few things, but uh, before anything, want to thank the sponsor of the show, Viva. Thank you, Viva, for sponsoring. Viva, are you familiar with Viva, Donna, at all? Viva, very much, very much so. See, from the sponsors and CROs, they they. Viva is a household name. So Viva really wants sites. They want to become a household name for sites too. And I think that's the next chapter in their company's um, growth is getting sites. So it's absolutely free. Viva Site Vault. So in the link, it's sites.viva.com. You can digitize your regulatory documents, make it e-reg. Then you could passively choose to share your reg docs as you update them with the sponsor's trial master file completely passively by just clicking a box uh so thank you viva for sponsoring the show and donna thank you so donna stram she's an industry veteran she is a sierra founder um, of a boutique CRO, which that's a growing trend actually yesterday donna i was interviewing a study director from a biotech and he also said you know what we're noticing a lot of boutique zeros as well. Matter of fact, some of the discussion I had with him are similar topics we're going to be covering today. So it's always good to get someone else's thoughts on it, especially somebody who started out in this industry as a CRA. And maybe we'll even go before CRA. Like, what what's your background? Then how did you discover this industry in the first place, Don? Well, it's kind of a funny story. I was a, um, a foreign language major in college and I'm bilingual, French English. And I graduated uh, in the late 80s during a recession. So there weren't a lot of jobs. Maybe um, similar to now, like we're about to enter into the same market kind of. Uh, let's hope that the job market for, for people is a lot better. Um, <laughs> for research, I think we're okay. Yeah. But I got your recession, foreign language major. Does so that I was, look too promising? <laughs> uh, no, no, it doesn't. Um, I was recruited by a Swiss biotech company because they needed a clinical trial administrator with the right um, citizenship in Union American. Um, but they also needed someone who was bilingual. And they figured it was going to be easier to hire and teach the science than to hire a scientist and teach the language. So, do you think that's true? I do. I think that learning a language. Um, is you know, it's it's certainly doable. It just takes time, yeah. and I think that if what you want is just a generalist who can who can pay attention and dig in, I think that's it's certainly a cheaper. It was a cheaper hire than anybody. You said one of my favorite things: generalist. So, do you think you had the makings of a generalist? Because that's something I recommend all my viewers and listeners strive to become if they want career safety really 
Mm-hmm. Certainly, I probably didn't think of it that way because I was very young. But as I, as throughout my career, if you can add another skill, if one, if one opportunity came across to add another skill, then I did. Um, which is how I went from clinical trial administrator to CRA to quality assurance to project management. Wow. Yeah. But, but let's, let's, let's look at, into this a little bit more. So you graduate foreign language major, you know, nothing about clinical research, maybe not even that it exists. <laughs> you just, you're out there like in the world, you know, foreign language major, not thinking about clinical research. How does a biotech find you? Well, I was temping. I was working for, I was answering phones for a, for a, a Holter monitoring company. Uh, and I was temping and they hired me for an emergency that they had. And I kept staying on and staying on. And then the full-time job was offered. I gotcha. So they must have seen something in you besides just the fact that you were multilingual. Do you think in hindsight, do you think they saw what was it besides the fact that you spoke the language that they liked? Do you think now looking back, you know, with a hindsight 2020? I think I was, in, I think looking back, what I had to offer other than language was enthusiasm and work. I was so pleased to be doing, I come from a medical family and to have stumbled uh-huh. into uh, something tangential, even at, even at that layer, at that level, I was just so pleased and so excited about the industry and that goes a long way i swear to god i when i hire right now what i'm really looking for is enthusiasm and just like oh this is great (laughs) because everything you can teach almost everything but what you can't is digging in yeah you can't teach that effort but so many people are listening maybe they're at the early stage of their career so they think that this is a cliche like they don't believe it you know oh passion is everything but the more i'm in this field and you certainly also like the more it's actually true like there's a reason why certain things are cliches <laughs> i know that since we since i started the CRO in 95 i have hired a number of enthusiastic generalists probably 10 over the last 20 years with no background in the industry And they have all ended up in the industry. And it's very, very gratifying. You know, people love it or they don't. And if they do love it, it's, there's not a lot of barrier to entry if you're willing to start at the beginning. I mean, that's been my experience. I can't speak for anyone else. That's been mine as well. Um, And a lot of people's that I've hired also. So that's interesting, Donna. So they recruited you, this biotech, Swiss biotech recruited you. They put you in the CTA role, clinical trial assistant, right? Or administrator? They called it administrator, but it was basically that. I was a, I was a CTA. Yeah. All, uh, these acronyms are so confusing, but they're basically, guys, if you're listening, just listen to the or read the job responsibilities for any role. So how quickly from CTA did you go to CRA? I spent a solid three years with this company. And then I started looking out, looking around for the next step. And after three years, I joined a CRL, unfortunately now defunct. Ah, who was it? Uh, uh, God, they were in Hartford, Connecticut. I actually have to check my CV. Was um, it Kendall 
But no, Kendall no. was Cincinnati. I remember yeah. them. It was, uh, oh gosh, I'll have to look that up, actually. Yeah, wow. Were, I can see them. They were in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, they were what acquired does... by Boringer and Ohio, I think. Oh, okay. So they got absorbed into, like, um, the big pharma. You know, it's interesting. They'll come to me in the, mid- in the middle of the night. I'll be like, oh, yeah, I got to tell you. You know, the, um, I tell people the story of Ikevia and how Dr. Keelings founded it and Basically, he invented the concept of a CRO, but it's it's interesting to if we can go back and look at those early CROs. Like you said, most of them got acquired or became part of other pharma or um, part of like the big five now. Um, but just interesting to go back and see kind of what their value prop was back then versus what it is today, which sometimes are not necessarily congruent. A lot of the goal, uh, there was a wave of CROs being absorbed into larger companies uh, back in the the early to mid 90s. And I think for a lot of companies, that was actually the goal was to set up a viable CRO and then be absorbed. Perfectly understandable um, and and very value adding to everybody there. Uh, But I do think uh, there was a a wave that... um, where the CROs would get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger by by absorbing more and more of the smaller ones. And do you think that ran in parallel? Because I started in this industry in 05. Prior to that, full-time. Um, prior to that, I interned here and there. So technically, I started like 2000. But really, full-time was 04, 05. You were, you were talking about mid-90s, right? In your case. Do you... Did you see the shift? Because I think I got in when private industry was already robust. Like you had private sites. Um, That was the majority of trials when I started. But mid-90s, were you there like in the middle of the shift from academia heavy to let's balance it with private sites? Yes. Yes. Uh, In fact, one of my early study coordinators from, um, gosh, would have been very very early in my career went and set up she was uh working as a study coordinator and she went and hired a hired a, a building set up a research site hired a an md and now she has this thriving business in boston uh Pawtucket medical i believe and i it was amazing watching over the last 20 years her achievements from a single site where she was working as a study coordinator to a very, very well-respected uh, uh, research uh, conglomerate, basically. It's huge. Protected Medical is huge. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, do, I do think that a lot of that went from academic to small sites to, I think, the SMOs grew out of that period, too. Yeah. Because when I started, there were no SMOs that I ever came across. Yeah, when I started, SMOs were like all the rage, and it was like my goal as a new site owner to like, hey, one day maybe I could be an SMO, and I think in hindsight, it was the wrong blueprint to follow. I mean, luckily for me, that bubble popped around 08, 09, during the last recession, actually, that bubble popped, just like we're seeing the DCT bubble, in my opinion, pop today. Uh, There's so many DCT vendors going out of business, laying people off, but small private sites are thriving um 
I thought about starting up an SMO too, and I came to the same conclusion. <laughs> it's just something was uh, didn't sit right with fast growth, like scaling fast, but um, the the doctors and the patients were not part of the company. You were almost like renting them. It just mm-hmm. seemed like a funny business. It seemed like a house of cards, even back then to me. Because I've always worked with doctors in their offices. Like I made the doctor my partner. So now they're like in business with me. These SMOs would just go in there. They would either pay rent or not pay rent to the doctor. And then basically they were their employees. And the doctor could tell them to go kick rocks whenever they wanted to. So, and same thing with the SMO. They could leave whenever they're they're done messing with the database of the doctors it just never made sense to me and in hindsight it didn't work out and um it's interesting to see the shift from academia to private industry and that's also the same time cro's really started gaining market share i think that's like around the same time ikevia or at the time quintiles went public for the first time so they were really making um headway in this industry yeah, my first, the early years, most of, it was about a 50-50 mix between industry, um, being hired or contracted with by industry, and supporting CROs as a as a contractor. And pa- compare that to now, 2023, what are you seeing? Like 50-50 back then, what is it now, do you think? Most, honestly, I do a lot of work with CROs. Um, headcount is always challenging because everyone, the, the buzzword right-sizing or just-in-time, everyone needs personnel and they need them immediately. So I get a lot of calls from placement agencies, CROs, who need somebody immediately, uh, which was, which is a slightly different model than what, we, than what I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When well, I... Project management. I I know roughly when we're going to need the CRAs, and I've lined them up months ahead of time so that we aren't scrambling. Yeah, no, the industry is absolutely out of control right now. I'm on a with the site that I own here in Yuma, Arizona. We're in startup mode for like three studies, and on one of the studies, we're ready to go. We did all our vendor training. There's like an X-ray tech that did his training, but they're still not activated. And I'm asking my monitor, hey we want to start screening next week. What's happening? He's like, well, ask your startup specialist. And I'm like, okay, I will. But who is it? Like, we have no clue who to even report to uh, or who to ask for things. And we're a rescue site. Can you believe it? Like, What about us? <laughs> you know who the project manager is? He gave me the info. So I need to email the project manager. But you would think, like, we're in startup mode for like a month now that somebody would follow up with me and say, hey, why are you not screening yet? But I'm the one having to do this. (laughs) And we're a rescue site. And this is one of the big five CROs we're dealing with. So it's crazy. The industry is absolutely nuts right now. We are very high touch. We are small and very agile. So we don't tend to have those kinds of issues. I mean, everyone has my phone number. If they have a question, they just call. Yeah, if if we were one of your sites for your CRO, You'd be on the phone. We would already have this problem resolved. Or at least you'd know what was going on and yeah. you'd have a roadmap. <laughs> That's I all I want. Everything. I wanted a roadmap. I basically asked them, what are we still missing? Because I think everything's done on our end. 
but somehow we don't have a green light um so yeah that's big zero for you uh we'll get back to it but back to your career trajectory so when you became cra was it you said you went with a cro at the time mm-hmm. well, i started yes i went from a cro because i will say that cro's their training is excellent and i was aware that coming from cta to cra was going to be a bit of a learning gap and the cro uh no oh, national medical research that's who they are that's ah okay out of hartford okay um fantastic training plan I mean, intensive six weeks, making sure that you understood the fundamentals. And a lot of it was, uh, you know, you come across it as a CTA. I'm glad I did it. The, um, the road warrior part was, was challenging at times. Um, and after a while, I went and started. I wanted to come home. I'm a Boston girl. So I wanted to come home from Connecticut because somehow two hours was too far. <laughs> um, so I started looking around and I ended up at uh, Immunogen in, in Cambridge on Sydney Street and oh, loved them. They, uh, I, would, I would still be there. Um, they had, in the 90s, some financial issues uh, and they had to do layoffs at that time. And clinical wasn't touched, but we were such a tight group. We would pull into the parking lot at seven in the morning, eight in the morning, 50 cars there already. And then after the layoffs, I pulled in that Monday and there were like two people there. And I'm like, <laughs> my, wow. my beloved immunity is gutted. They are back feet now. They're they wonderful. are back, yeah. Somebody took them public and then private again, or I can't remember the, their oncology group, if I remember. That's the group I work for. They, they're such a good company. I was so pleased to see them come back. Um, so you were there in the middle of their layoffs. <laughs> and when was this? What, what years were this? 95. Okay. Wow. And uh, so as far, but you being the CRA, you were not one of the ones laid off. No, they didn't touch clinical because we had a bunch of studies open. Um, But they touched the rest of the company and we were so tight as a group. It was just a lovely place to work. Absolutely delightful. Um, What's funny is there are Immunogen alumni that I run into all the time. I just finished a contract where I was where I ran into somebody I'd worked with at Immunogen, and it was like old home week. It, uh, it's like the old alumni. Um, you guys, I mean, that original group, 95 till today, what is that, like almost 30 years? Don't do the math. <laughs> <laughs> you can do a lot in this industry in that time. I mean, I'm sure some of those people went on, like you said, one of your colleagues is the founder of a conglomerate. Like there's, you're, found your own boutique CRO like there's probably a lot of that spirit uh amongst those early employees or uh I don't know if it was early but sounds like it was a startup back then you mean it was probably not quite a startup but it was definitely um not what it it was not what it is now so when did uh, you go when did you go from them to CRO or was it backwards CRO to I I went from a CRO to a Ah, uh, okay, okay. So you were already CRA, then you went to Immunogen. Which one you prefer better, the sponsor? I did like the sponsor better. I mean, Immunogen was a, a very special place, um, and I really enjoyed my team. I enjoyed my colleagues. It was delightful. And then when when were the seeds planted for 
you know, hey, maybe I can start my own CRO one day. Did that come early in your career or was that something that kind of developed that took some there was time? A, I was an independent contractor for about 10 years uh, at Munigen after layoffs. And I was recruited to become independent by what was then Sandoz. Um, I co-authored a publication uh, with one of their investigators who was working at Sandoz. And he gave me a call after the layoffs uh, and said, hey, if, if you're interested in making a jump, we would love for you to be part of our initial consulting team. Um, so I did. And that was a, a solid 10 years of consulting. Uh, and the CRO idea just evolved because more and more of my clients needed more than one person. So I incorporated in 2009 um, and staffed up. Now I have a team of, I think, eight full-time um, internal employees and a, a huge roster of consultants that I call on to staff up as necessary. So we're basically a turnkey clinops department now. Now, with, the, with your boutique CRO? Mm -hmm. Yes. So if you're a company that is running a clinical trial and you're lacking clinops staff, you need a project manager, you need a CTA, you need some regulatory, you need quality assurance, um, we provide that. And if you need services in addition to that, data management, medical monitor, stats, we have uh, informal relationships with other boutique zeros that provide those services, but not ClinOps. Uh, ITS up in Canada we work with. Um, I do get a lot of work from Clora, which is a Boston-based group. Um, just it's We just have these relationships with companies to, to fulfill larger needs. I Everyone has their specialty. I think that's the um, survival strategy. It's actually an advantage. Uh, it's more of a decentralized way to do business. I know my boutique CRO, we basically focus on study startup and site selection. And that's our strength really is the site networks that we have um, and the influence we have over the site. So that's how we know each other is um, collaborating, even though I don't think we've officially worked on a project, but we're already started to. Well, we will. Yeah. Um, that's, I think that's actually, do you think that's a growing trend or do you think these CROs, um, are just going to get bigger by acquisition? I think both of those things are true. I think wow. CROs will naturally keep getting bigger. Um, because you know, if, if they keep absorbing, um, smaller organizations, that's a win-win for everybody. Uh, I do think that smaller organizations and sort of a, a federated connection of different companies that you work with provide the larger scope of services is a good way to meet the need for just-in-time hiring. Because if you need a data manager, I know where I can get you one. And I have connections with mm. a partner company that provides those services. So when that time comes, we already have somebody lined up. So they're slightly different needs. I see. Going back to you being an independent contractor before you started your boutique, it makes sense to me. When you're an independent contractor, you're essentially your own business, right? You're running, I mean, your job, whatever you're doing is your business. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually a good um, precursor to 
if it's something you want to do starting your own business, uh, which not enough people do. Because if you have enough experience as a CRA or as a project manager or even as a coordinator, I mean, you could be an independent contractor in those roles. And if eventually one day you want to start your own site or start your own CRO or start whatever, a, a vendor company, you can do it. And you've already trained yourself to where you're taking care of yourself. You're yes. relying on your um, initiatives to get business for yourself. It's basically an easy transition to see to, to being a business owner. Is that exactly what you did more or less? That is. I incorporated um, as a as an LLC uh, when I was a contractor, and then we rebranded as a CRO. But it is you you get a sense as a contractor where the needs are, um, and those things do change. There's an enormous need right now for QA personnel. There's an enormous need for believe it or not, clinical trial associates, um, and so you begin to learn where the where the uh, the choke points are and how to and how to meet those needs for your clients it's not always they don't always need you but they need somebody and if you have that somebody then all of a sudden you're evolving uh, into more than just being a contractor for yourself i definitely see that i think not enough people talk about that because when i be, i was a side owner my whole life but i had a time period where business at the site got slow so I became a contract CRA and I worked for this small Korean company. Um, they had a U.S. Sub, there was a U.S. subsidiary, but they did a lot of work. Actually, all, all their work were with Korean sponsors. And the only reason they needed me was they needed somebody in California who had research experience to be their CRA. So I worked with them for three years and that turned into that contract CRA role turned into helping them get training for their new employees, onboarding their new employees, becoming more or less like a project manager. And then that evolved into the CRO, the boutique CRO we have today. I mean, it's not something I really th set out to do, but it's something that organically happened due to the opportunities. That's exactly my path too. just mm -hmm. uh, staying flexible and agile and giving the client what they want. And this is why generalists is important because you never know what they're going to ask. And if your initial inclinations to say, no, you know, I'm not sure I haven't done that. Or if it's something you don't want to do, that's different. But, you know, a lot of times these people, they don't know as much about the process as you do. Even if you're just a CRA, you probably know a lot more about the entire drug development process than they might know. They might know like a tiny portion of it, but you're, you're basically a generalist, whether you think of yourself as one or not. So the, and networking is huge because if you're lacking something, somebody's going to be able to help you out. So this is basically how you started your boutique <laughs> Sierra. That's amazing. And you've been doing that now for how long? 30 plus years. 30 years boutique CRO. So you've seen the industry evolve so much. You Oh, you when I started paper CRFs, there was no such thing as an ETMF. Um, uh, I mean, I started ironically in device and the rules were so loosey goosey then. <laughs> Everything. It's been an enormous shift. What do you think I mean, about the, because I've 
the first year I started was paper CRFs too. And then we immediately, like the next year, it was <laughs> like everything just EDC. Uh, but I did see enough paper CRF to see that change. What do you think now? Now I'm I'm training my coordinators at the site and I'm asking them, hey, are you entering data? And it's kind of like a blurred line because they're like, no, the IRT does a lot of it for us. So I'm like, what do you mean the IRT? So I look at it and they're like, uh, yeah, you know, lab results get entered through the central lab. Uh, enrollment, like all the demographic date of birth, all that stuff gets entered for them. We're using eSource. So mm -hmm. now the CRA is huge change. It's huge. Like it's so different. And where do you think this is headed? Because do you think like something like data entry? I mean, I see this as not being necessary, really. I think that eSource, I mean, uh, EDCs were a huge game changer. The Inform, the early ones. I remember that. <laughs> uh, I still love Inform. Uh, yeah. Metadata rave, I, they're, they're all great, but informal will always have my heart. The little stop. You remember Impala? You remember Impala, the IVRS where you had to call in and randomize yes. somebody with your phone? Yep. These coordinators don't know anything about that these days. <laughs> Funny. I think that we're going to, uh, quite naturally, because again, everybody is understaffed. And, and for the last 20 years, research sites have been understaffed. Study coordinators are being asked to do more and more. Um, they're seeing patients, they're doing data entry, they're doing regulatory. I think that because of the understaffing, there's a huge impetus to reduce the amount of actual labor that can be done electronically, uh, to, to increase the amount of labor that can be done electronically. So I think that eSource is really going to be the next, the next wave that changes the industry. If study coordinators don't have to spend hours entering data, they, that if it can be reliably entered automatically, right. if eSource becomes, you know, it just gets uh, transitioned into the eCRF, I think that's the next thing that's going to be um, game changing. That's my, yeah. uh, my. I do think so as well. There are some benefits to redundancy. Um, mm -hmm. One of my coordinators asked me, she's brand new. She said, why are we entering data twice? <laughs> because she's using eSource. So she's entering data as in real time on the eSource. And then we tell her, hey, you have to do EDC as well. I know a lot of it's done for you, but she's like, why? I don't understand why we have to do that. I said, I don't either. That's just how it is. It's probably going to change soon. But for now, this is how we do it. But I do see some benefit in the redundancy, although the pros definitely outweigh the cons. We can catch some deviations, um, mm -hmm. minor deviations, based on data entry. Like you've, you're entering results for something in the EDC, and you realize, wait, we didn't get your analysis, and EDC is asking for it. So then you can do an unscheduled visit. For whatever reason, either it wasn't done or the labs lost it, which happens. Um, bring the patient back in, you avoid a deviation, right? As opposed to letting it passively just enter whatever data you have, and then your CRA comes and catches the deviation. So I yeah. do see some benefit, but it's definitely not enough to change this trend from happening. Yes. I, I think that it's going to end up being a blend of, you know, lab values can absolutely be pushed directly from eSource to the EDC. Um, 
but there also has to be a determination. Is this clinically significant? The, the personnel process is never going to be fully out of it. But the mechanical, if we can reduce the mechanical um, redundancies, I do think that that's a real benefit. Yeah. What? So what do you think CROs are, are doing? Because... I mean, this this IRT thing now, it started like as just a more advanced IWRS. Yeah. And now it's just so much more than that because it's like a, this master integrator of everything. What do you think I, CROs like? They're becoming tech companies more or less. So like, what do you think about that? Like the big ones? Yeah, the big ones are much like we talk about with boutique CROs and have the evolution of services. I do see the CROs um, adding uh, what would have been a standalone tech company. To their, to their offerings. Uh, they can do full data management. They can do integration between the EDC and the IRT. Um, and it, it makes sense to me from a business perspective, give the client what they want. If the sponsor wants one-stop shopping, it does make sense to go with a big CRO that has all of these offerings. Uh, I can totally see that. There, there are layers of cost associated with that, of course. Um, but that's definitely a very reasonable choice. I think about this a lot with the big CROs. I don't think they actually wanted the tech. I think they were perfectly fine not innovating and charging a premium on their manual services. I think tech vendors like Viva, like Metadata, I mean, they're going to innovate regardless. So I think the CROs, the big CROs are adopting these things out of necessity to not fall behind because now sponsors expect these things. But I, I think agree. something interesting is happening. I want to get your take on this. Don't you think the more tech that comes out, the easier it is for a sponsor to take back control of their study and say, hey, why are we paying the CRO to manage everything? We All this tech is off the shelf. We can just hire people in-house to manage it. That's a really interesting take. I do see that happening. Um, I think one of the reasons Medidata Rave has be, or and like Medrio have been so popular in the last few years is because there is an aspect of they're a box of Legos and the sponsor can bring people in to do their own data management. I do see that escalating. Um, some sponsors don't want that. They don't want the internal staffing. And certainly with the difficulties everybody's having in staffing up, this year, I I can see that slowing down a little bit, um, but no, I I would I would agree with you. I do think that that's an industry um, trend that we may be seeing with sponsors, you know, hiring their own staff and just licensing the off the shelf off the shelf software. Yeah, and then I, I mean we haven't even discussed AI and its capabilities. I mean, when it comes to monitoring, okay, SDR source data review maybe not but sdv how difficult is that to actually pull off like for ai to match data on source with edc it's like sdv is could be automated you can you can look forward a little and see how that could happen I do think that we are going that we're never going to be able to get the monitoring not what we want to the job monitoring source document verification is maybe halfway down the list of what the FDA says a monitor does. Um, analysis, interpretation, communication, 
management, um, training, source document verification. Um, but the the simple, you know, matching a, a hemoglobin with a hemoglobin with eSource, that's going to be obviated. But you can't get the, um, you know, if the if the hemoglobin is shot up, then you need the analysis of the of the monitor to say, okay, is this a known side effect? Is this an error? I mean, there's some there's a lot of analysis that occurs when you're doing source document verification. So I'd I'd be surprised if that uh, would ever disappear. Yeah, I, we'll see. I think more remote monitoring. I'm oh, not yeah. quite sure how you feel about remote monitoring. I think you get a lot more information. I'm not sure either. I think. You can do more. I'm seeing it organically at my own site, just with like a few studies. Mm -hmm. We have eSource and eReg. So one of my CRAs just moved. She moved from Phoenix to Houston. And they give her autonomy of how she wants to monitor. So she's like, oh, it's pretty good that you guys are using eSource eReg because I can just remote monitor now. Every now and then I have to come in and look at the actual IP. and But I can remote monitor more or less. So it's not anything that we're mandating on her. I mean, we'd prefer that she remote monitors, but it's just something that's organically occurring. Like, okay, it's more convenient now. I can do an extra IMV. And I guess it's better for us because each time she comes, it does trigger a payment to the site. So we're like, okay, yeah, you know, just do another remote monitoring visit if you need to. I mean, (laughs) it's a win-win, I think. The pandemic, if it taught us anything, it taught us what jobs can really be done remotely. And I don't think you can do everything remotely. I do think there's a place for, you know, on-site auditing, on-site monitoring, on-site project management. But there is a lot that can be done remotely with the new tech. I mean, Zoom meetings were were rare before the pandemic. And now we didn't I, know what Zoom was. I didn't we're all know. All on phone on video all the time. Yeah, Zoom. I had no idea what Zoom was before COVID, and now it's a daily part of my every day, like multiple go. times a day. I do notice that with the remote visits, and I'm just anecdotal, site owner, CRC with CRA, when the, you lose a little bit of that human element, um, we get along really well with our CRA, and that's probably because she came in a lot early on. And I do notice it's the same CRA. She didn't change. We didn't change. She's more distant now that her last few visits were remote. Mm. So I don't know what that actually, I don't know how to articulate it better. It's not like she's meaner or anything, but it's just more distant. Like um, you lose something. Yeah, I agree. When I do project management for my clients, even if it's, I can do everything remotely, but I do encourage them to hold on-site. I usually, like, for example, I was working for a company in Philadelphia for a number of years, and I would just fly to Philadelphia every couple of weeks to spend a day on-site, not because I couldn't do the work here, but because for some intangible reason, things happened on-site even that... You need to have the human connection at times. It doesn't have yeah. to be every day. I would never say to go into the office every day. But it is important not to be fully remote all the time. There is a sweet spot. And I think it has, I think the benefits are 
more site compliance because mm-hmm. uh, and i don't know about you you're on the other side of it but as a site owner you know when i meet a cra in person and then like we get along she emails things i'll make sure it gets done quick because we have a rapport the more time goes by that i don't see her but we just do zooms or emails the less i lose that motivation to respond to their requests until she comes back and then it's like resets the cycle it's weird it's very strange i don't really know how else to articulate it but there's something there and i know exactly i i think i know exactly what you mean (laughs) zoom is great but zoom is better than email but not as good as you know being face to face with people, mm-hmm. it it encourages very direct, um, very targeted communication, which is useful. But you don't see each other really as people over Zoom, no. um, because that's not what Zoom does best. You could do like daily Zooms, I think, and it would equate to maybe one in person visit a month, as far as like that rapport. But now Everyone you're losing daily the- Zooms. Yeah, but now you're losing the efficiency, right? Because you don't need the redundancy. So there's something like there's always a trade-off. Um, why are boutique CROs growing and becoming more popular with sponsors? Oh boy, I can speak for only my own, my own perceptions. Um, boutique boutique CROs are have lower headcaps. So you're getting, I think, more experienced people and people farther along in their career who are actually hands-on working on your project. Um, there's not, there's less, I think, middle management in a CRO. So you're really you're dealing with your whole team. Um, I think that the sponsors are liking that, and I also think that it, again, it's this: they don't want personnel on a project until the very last second. So uh, I think that there's a little, there's a bit of agility that these boutique CROs are able to provide. That's a little harder if you're a, a, a Quintiles or an Ikevia. Mm-hmm. Um, conversely, the bigger CROs do provide one-stop shopping, which is valuable to larger companies for more complicated studies. Yeah, the one stop, I mean, that makes things a little bit easier on the sponsor side, but they're they're paying for it and maybe the quality is not as good as you can get from a boutique zero that is decentralized and connected with all the other stakeholders that could basically become a full service zero just piece by yeah. piece we i tend to see a lot of a really firm commitment with the smaller CRO with the boutique zeros where you've got a project you know exactly who your partners are you know exactly what the sponsor needs and we tend to be very very high touch um you know you can get a hold of your project manager you can get a hold of the company president by text at 10 o'clock at night because that's just the kind I find that personality type more often in small boutique zeros. I mean, you hate to use the word workaholic, but some of us are. 
<laughs> so in in the 30 years you've been running this boutique zero um are do our sponsor needs still the same now as they were then and if so what are like the top three oh i can't tell you over time because of course i was not in direct contact with sponsors earlier in my career um Sponsor needs now, the, the client base that Chimera Clinical has is small um, pharmaceutical companies that typically they think they need a project manager when in fact they need the ClinOps department. Mm -hmm. And the biggest need I see among my client base is a little bit of guidance as to exactly what the process is for running a, 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 a clinical study, because there's a lot of there's a lot they don't that they may not be aware of when they kick off their projects. So it, I think that um, in addition to the actual rolling up your sleeves and getting to work doing this, they need a little guidance on, okay, well, these are the regulations. These are the plans we have to have. This is approximately what your budget's going to look like. Um, have you thought about this and this and this? And I think that it's easier for the sponsors to sort of understand when they have just the same team they're working with month after month after year after year. And there's a, a, a I think a trust and a communication that develops um, because there's very, in my experience, there's very low turnover um, with the smaller companies. But the, the bottom line, isn't the bottom line, hasn't the bottom line always been, we need X number of patients in Y period of time. And mm -hmm. at this cost, everything yes. else is just noise or a necessary evil. Everything else is a necessary evil. <laughs> yeah. So if it's you can deliver to... the everything else perfectly, but you can't deliver the big picture on time and uh, under budget. We try. Uh, but is that acceptable? Is that just like the norm? Like that's just status quo. Nobody does it anyway. So. You Not don't worry about that? No, I think that, I mean, recruitment and retention is always a challenge. Um, there's always an expectation that the rate of enrollment is going to be faster than it ever ends up being. <laughs> and when you do the math and say, okay, we have to subtract this percentage, this is what the real number of enrollment may be. There's always like a, well, no, 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 we can't have that. So recruitment and retention is always challenging. One of the things that obviously everyone needs to do when they plan their uh, their studies is how, what do you foresee the problems? Where do you foresee the bottlenecks being? Where are the problems that we can solve in advance to bring patients on study and to keep them there? So you have your recruitment plans, you have your, your you do your problem solving in advance and then you roll with what happens. I mean, I'm finishing a COVID study and we've had these wild roller coaster enrollments where there's a lot of subjects that come in and then nothing. Um, and that couldn't have been foreseen. And you just roll with it and you, and you come up with other stratagems. Are you, do you advocate for rescue sites or do you advocate generally for let's fix the strategies for our existing sites that we have when it comes to enrollment? Both. Some sites need sites. There's always a few sites on every study that thought they could do it and they don't have the population. Um, and they realize that. And there's 
there's only so much you can do in those situations. I, if they need to be replaced, then they need to be replaced. And I advocate for fixing problems that can be fixed and bringing on additional sites if, if that's the need. I mean, there's no point in continuing to do something that doesn't work with the site. It's not good for them. It's not good for the study. So I'm, I'm very proactive about replacing sites once it's been determined that they really aren't going to be able to do the job. Yeah. And why do you think that happens so often? Because it happens to me too as a site owner. Like we get a study on the surface, it looks like it's going to be easy. And then we get the SIV and we learn all the nuances. And we're like, wait a minute. <laughs> this We got to divide our numbers by 10 now. This is like new information to me. Right. Well, what's funny is that one of the challenges that we have from a project management perspective is that the site knows long before we do that they just they mentally divided their enrollment by 10. <laughs> um, I think this new field of site specialist, site startup specialist, is evolving particularly for this reason, to take a little more time to dig in and determine before the SIV whether the population really exists and whether you have the personnel and whether there's the training that's been done, are you aware of exactly what uh, the problems might be or enrollment? How are you going to get your patients? Um, but there's always, you know, you, you can have a population on, in March and then you get initiated in May and they're gone. Uh, that's, it just happens sometimes. Yeah. It's not always the fault of anyone. It sometimes just happens. If you have a huge snowbird population, your population changes seasonally. Yeah, that's us here in Yuma also. Um, interesting. So what do you think the hard... We talked about automation, AI, maybe tech. What do you think the most difficult aspects of running a study are that you don't see in its current form AI ever automating? There are a lot of new sites, new investigational sites that are popping up because um, it's it's a big business. And those first years, you know, AI isn't helping with the training. The training of st study personnel, training to the regulations, training to industry standard. Um, that's very bumpy when you have an early, a site early in its development. And I have found, because um, I, love working with new sites, but I have found that there, when you have a relatively new investigative site, there has to be a lot of hands-on prep to make sure that everybody's on the same page and that every, that everyone, that the expectations for knowledge and training and documentation are well understood. Uh, and that's not always so obvious. Mm -hmm. So I always prepare for that. Um, and other than that, you know, the industry is in tremendous flux and it's been accelerated by the pandemic. Uh, so it's a really interesting time that we're in right now. I do think we're going to see more automation, as we've discussed, more AI, more electronic reduction of hands-on work. Um, you know, we're going to try and reduce the hands-on, you know, data entry as much as we can. I think we're, we're going to see some huge changes and I think that they're happening now. Yeah, I, I would agree, although 
I think that just opens up more work uh, that we don't know about. I mean, yeah, there's like, I, I think there's so much we don't understand with this whole AI chat GPT. Like I've, I've been playing around with it myself for a little bit and it's almost like an, you have to, I'm developing a new skill in real time. Like what do you ask it? Because the information's there. It's like a universe of information, but it's meaningless without an orchestrator like what what do you do with it and then how do you get some kind of productive output from it yeah i think that's like the fact that it's there is one thing but what do you do with it and how do you make it something productive for your vertical that's something completely different that we don't understand i think there's gonna be new jobs created from just from that alone and i imagine you i mean how could there not be it's clearly got use we just don't know how how to apply that to improve clinical research. Yeah. I mean, we could barely name the problems of clinical research. Like people have been doing this for decades. They disagree on the problems of like the fundamental problems of our industry. Yeah. It's a very exciting time. We're in a time of explosive change. And uh, it's almost like what I remember of when we first started to get uh, EDCs moving from everyone's homegrown system to, you know, <laughs> everyone having EDC. Uh, I'm excited for the next few years. I don't know what it's going to bring. Yeah, I don't either. I don't think any of us do. I, I remember the EDC shift. My one CRA at the time, which was paper, she was getting ready to retire and I was a brand new coordinator. And she told me, yeah, this is my last study. Thank God I'm getting out before the robots take over with EDC. <laughs> so she thought the job was going to be obsolete in five years. CRA. Yeah, I remember thinking that. And this was 2005. Like, no, we're in a short, more of a shortage now than we were then for series. Yeah. Yep. Now, periods of it, periods of change are unsettling. Uh, everyone is sort of wondering what's going to happen next. and. Circling back to the beginning of our conversation, remaining agile and just being aware of what the industry needs so you can provide it. Yeah. It's, it's, what, it's what we all have to do. Another thing that feels funny to me right now is watching industries and the economy basically crash and burn all around us. Yet in our little space, we're just growing like it's just boom. And I don't know if it's hubris or just drinking our own Kool-Aid, but I don't really see it slowing down and other industries are imploding. We have, this has always been a very strong industry, certainly in the United States. Um, we don't manufacture a lot of stuff, but we do a lot of drug development. Um, it. From my perspective, this has always felt like a very stable industry to be in. It it goes up and down, and it's and it changes. It's always in flux. But I I don't see this as being an unstable industry at all. And and the kind of clients you work with, generally smaller biotech, smaller pharmaceutical. Are they? Some of them are publicly traded. Others are pre IPO. I'm imagining. Mm-hmm. Are you hearing things through? the grapevine about financial problems they're encountering? That would not be something that they would be sharing with me. 
as ah, a okay. hero. They, uh, you know, you one pays attention. Yeah. But certainly I couldn't speak to that because I they would not be telling me that. But the only thing I would know is what everybody in the industry knows. Are you noticing any hints of a slowdown? Not right now. I, I hear it. I hear the last few months I've heard chatter about the industry slowing down. But that's also, I hear that every year between November and January. Well, yeah, everybody goes on the <laughs> Yeah, the industry always slows down. You know, it was one of the busiest November through January I can remember in our Dang. industry. It's usually, December is usually vacation time, December and August. You know, I uh, had we had two SIVs in the last week of the year, like before New Year's Eve. Nobody used to do that in the past. Like, they're just off. And no, we did two SIVs. The last two, three years have been frantically busy uh, for our company. And we've just, I, it's been quiet January so far. And we're all, everyone at Chimera is just sort of taking a break. <sighs> Because second now it's gonna it's gonna explode again. Well, thank you, Donna. Everybody, go connect with Donna. Her LinkedIn. Do you want to link to your LinkedIn, or do you want to link to something else underneath here? Where our website is under development right now. We're about to launch it. So uh, why don't you link to my LinkedIn? Okay. Perfect. When the website is ready for prime time, I'll I'll have that link in link in the web in my LinkedIn profile and I gotta ask one more thing because I get asked this a lot before we go sorry sorry Donna um, this is like a good conversation you don't have a science background right a lot of the audience also doesn't that's watching and looking for career opportunities you've published a paper from what I understand from what I heard I have a couple of publications a couple. So, I mean, it's obviously self-taught, but are you, did you basically learn the science um, on your own? And like, what, what involvement were, uh, did you have on writing those, those papers? Uh, well, the papers were based on the studies that, uh, that I was integral to running. And when when you're doing your clinical study reports, when you're looking at your data, uh, everyone's involved at that point. Um, so it was it was actually very, very generous of them to include me as a co-author. And like how deep in the science do you have to get now? Like, do you find yourself learning the science or do you, can you kind of make it in this industry without like in, in the role you have without delving too deep into the science or is it just something unavoidable? It, no, it's it it's un, in my opinion, it's unavoidable. You have to when I have a new therapeutic area, um, I immediately immerse myself into the documentation. When there's a new um, a new technology that the sponsor is using, I will immerse myself in it and learn everything I can about it because that's part of the job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's also what keeps the job interesting. Yeah, I think it helps to have a little bit of ADHD. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have a lot of it. Um, well, thank you, Donna. I really appreciate it. Look, everybody go connect with Donna. Her LinkedIn is below the video and in the show notes. It's been a pleasure. She's got a boutique CRO. Reach out to her for any inquiries uh, or anything else that you may have questions about. And I really appreciate it, Donna. I look forward to working with you and possibly doing more podcasts. Thank you so much for inviting me.
Thank you. Everybody like, subscribe, comment, share, and catch you all later. Bye-bye.